0: All right, I think we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. Let them go out, the rest of you. Go ahead and get out your uh, sermon outline uh, from your bulletin today. We're in John chapter 15, the last half of the chapter, and this is a particularly hard passage of Scripture. This is not one you would pick on the day you're going to have a harvest festival, Um, and you're going to have a a big party, and everybody have fun, and eat lots of food, and talk about what a great place this is to be, and I was reading it, and I was saying, man, I should have done this another time, and this would have worked better for the you know, pray for the persecuted church Sunday, and then I could have really hammered you and not felt guilty. Um, But we deal with it as it comes. We don't take them out of order usually, and uh, this is what came. And so uh, we really go into this with the idea of what does God have to say to us today? Um, Many of you know these are sort of planned out months in advance, don't really know what the situation is going to be, what people are dealing with, uh, you know, when you come to a particular passage. So we have this one today. So let's read it and listen to it and try to hear what God would have for us this morning. John 15, verses 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to your word. We don't always understand everything that's there. We need your spirit to work in our hearts and minds to give us understanding to help us apply your word to our lives, to let it change us. So we pray this morning as we look into your word, the word of truth, the word of life, that it might bring truth and life to each one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you about Norman. Norman was a slob. Norman was disgusting. Norman was dirty, smelly, ugly, filthy, and putrid. Norman lived in a normal middle-class neighborhood, but his house looked just like him, filthy. The windows were so dirty you couldn't see through them. When Norman shook his head, dirt fell all around him. Norman hadn't washed the clothes uh, that he wore in several years and he always wore the same clothes. Norman hadn't taken a bath since the bathtub broke. The bathtub had been broken for over two years. The sheets on Norman's bed had mildew on them. And of course they hadn't been washed since who knows when. Norman had four teeth left. They were all green. Norman's a real person. And Norman's story is a real story. He was known as Crazy Norman in his hometown of West Frankfurt, Illinois. And he was known to walk down the street, stop, look up at the sky, and holler, Hey, who are one of a Breast and Frangas? Or some other such nonsense. Nobody could ever figure out what he said. And if you saw him walking down the street, you would wonder to yourself... Where are the guys in the white coats? Because this guy is nuts. Get him away from me. But you see, Norman wasn't nuts. Norman was rejected. And Norman had been rejected all his life. From the time he was very small and his father left till long after his mother died, Norman had known nothing but rejection. Everyone who he ever tried to get to know rejected him Totally. Until Norman stopped trying anymore. And one day a man named Mike Adkins moved into the neighborhood. And he started talking to Norman. It took him four long agonizing years to break through the hard shell that Norman had created around himself. And after several years of trying, one day he asked Norman why he didn't take a bath. Said, Norman, everyone who meets you complains about how bad you smell. And Norman just looked at Mike and, in one of his very first coherent responses, said, I didn't think anybody cared. See, rejection breaks relationships. Lack of relationships means loneliness, and loneliness breeds fear. And fearful people attract further rejection. And it's a vicious cycle. And Norman had spiraled all the way down to the bottom. You can read about it. There's a book called A Man Called Norman. And uh, his situation was actually much worse than I described. It is described in some detail in the book. And I don't know how you would cope Uh, or how you do cope with rejection. But I can tell you that Norman sure didn't know how to cope with rejection. I can also tell you that Jesus wants you to know how to cope with rejection because he says that rejection is going to be part of your life. So let's go to John 15. And let's look at this passage together. And the very first thing that we'll see here is that rejection comes to Christians. Rejection comes to Christians. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Well, that's some good news. I don't remember him telling me about that when I signed up for the whole Christian thing. Jesus loves you, but not me. It's a song like that, isn't there? I think so. But immediately in these first two verses, we see Jesus telling us to remember when the world hates us, that when people reject us, We need to keep in mind the world hated him first. Butch, I think I'm a little loud. Thanks. And he says that the world not only hated him first, but the people rejected him as well. He says that right there in verse 19. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you hate's a pretty strong word i wasn't allowed to use the word hate when i grow up when, when i grew up i'm still growing up but when i was little i would say something like oh i hate that and my mom would say don't use that word you dislike it so hates yeah she didn't like it. you weren't allowed to say hate that was tough it was extreme circumstances So, when you become a Christian, when you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, He sets you apart, and in a very real sense, He set you up for rejection. Why? Because you no longer conform to the pattern of this world, and the world resents people who fail to conform. When you aligned your life with Jesus Christ, you're going to draw the same kind of attitudes, the same kind of hatred, the same kind of rejection that was directed towards Jesus. And nowhere is the world's hatred more clearly seen, at least in our country, than in those people who judge themselves to be tolerant, but who are most intolerant when it comes to Christianity. They demonstrate their uh, understanding and patience and large-hearted goodness When they confront diverse opinions, alternative lifestyles, and just flat idiotic practices. But when some Christian claims that Christianity is the only way uh, to salvation, as Jesus insisted in John 14, or that moral absolutes exist because they are grounded in the character of God, as the Bible teaches, or that there is a hell to be shunned as well as a heaven to be gained, The worst language is used to shred that poor Christian fool. The world really does reject us. Now, the Christian, by definition, stands under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the world, by definition, does not stand under that same lordship. And it would seem obvious that the Christian in the world are heading in two different directions, operating under different orders, having different loyalties. Now, we read about this several times in Scripture. The Apostle John, writing in his letter, says in 1 John 3, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And then in 1 John 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So when people refuse to listen to you, and you are speaking to them of biblical things, of the things of Christ, and they are refusing to listen, it's because they have rejected what you have to say. And that can make it very difficult to be a follower of Christ in today's world. So who hates you? Do they hate you for the right reason? You ever gotten fired because you were loyal to Christ? Ever been cold-shouldered? Not sure if that's even a word, but you get the meaning. Or excluded or laughed at or undermined because you're loyal to Christ? I mean, it's part of the whole union with Christ. I mean, abiding in Christ, which we saw the first part of this chapter, which is the theme of this chapter. But it's not just a private, inner, mystical experience. I mean, it is that, but that inner experience marks us outwardly. And here Jesus is telling us right up front that not only is he the vine, he's also the controversy. Abide in Christ, the ultimate troublemaker. And I can imagine what you're thinking. Great. Christ has set me apart. Christ has set me up for a rejection. Now I'm going to be lonely. Lord, I don't need this. But remember the verses that went just before this. Those verses where Jesus spoke about the importance of loving one another. And Christians are rejected partly because as they increase in the intimacy and love and obedience and fruitfulness depicted in those verses, they'll have the same effect on the world that Jesus did. And the world's in rebellion against God, and it finds it hard to tolerate those who are loyal to God. But just as surely as rejection comes to Christians, it comes to Christians because of Christ, verse 20. The rejection comes to Christians because of Christ. Verse 20, "'Remember the word that I said to you, "'A servant is not greater than his master. "'If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. "'If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. "'But all these things they will do to you "'on account of my name, "'because they do not know him who sent me. "'If I had not come and spoken to them, "'they would not have been guilty of sin. "'But now they have no excuse for their sin. "'Whoever hates me hates my Father also.'" If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And so here Jesus is teaching them. He's telling them. He's having this very private conversation. Remember, it's in the upper room. He has the disciples. This isn't a one of those public teachings as we've seen so many times in the Gospels. This is Jesus and the apostles. And he's telling them and he's telling us, remember the words I spoke to you. Remember the teaching that I've given you. It will help you if you remember it. Remember me and remember my life. Remember what I went through. See, he hasn't gone through all of it yet. But he's telling them, there's going to be a time come. It's going to be very important for you to remember this. And in talking about Jesus, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He doesn't say may be persecuted. He says will be persecuted. After all, we stand uh, supposedly for the same things that Jesus stood for. And the world treats you this way because of Christ's name. If you conform your life to his life and to his teaching, people respond to you the same way they responded to him. And your hurt, your rejection, your persecution comes to you as a Christian because of Christ. And again, the scriptures are very clear here. The Apostle Paul uh, writes, we've seen uh, John's writing now, Paul, Philippians 1, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Peter, Apostle Peter writes, 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And as I was thinking about that, I was struck, I guess what's really disappointing to us when we get rejected because we're Christians is that we know that they know better. Most people we know have heard of Christ. They know what he's done and they have no reason for, the re- for rejecting us. They can't explain it. There's no excuse for it. You call yourself a Christian, they're going to reject you, period. Most of us, at least the most of the uh, adults and the older kids, have experienced that to one uh, degree or another. And you can hear the voices. I don't like you. I don't want anything to do with you. No particular reason, nothing personal. I just don't want to be around you, so please get out of here. Oh, you don't like it? Gee, that's too bad. But hey, I don't care, so go away. You Christians bother me. That's actually being said in many places. We should pray for our college students. I think Christian college students probably hear that, maybe more implied than spoken, but they probably get that as much as anybody. Why? Why does that happen? Because people are scared of those who they think will be threatening to them. And they know that real, authentic Christians are threatening. They're always trying to get you to change your life, to change your lifestyle, to change your language, to change those things you love. Christians represent change, and change is threatening. Therefore, Christians are threatening, and threats get rejected. And so Christians get rejected. But Jesus knows this rejection, So we're rejected because we're Christians and we're we're rejected because, uh, as Christians, we're rejected because of Christ, but he'll send counsel. Verse 26, he sends counsel. He says, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And verse 26 reminds us of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sends to us. He is the advocate of truth on our behalf. When we're rejected, we need some good counsel. We we need someone to go to who's dependable, who's wise, who can help us out. And we have that someone, the counselor, the comforter, our advocate, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. He's the one you need. He has the truth. He's dependable. He's always there. He gives wise counsel. He opens our hearts and minds to God's He reminds everyone of Christ. Sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes to unbelievers, reminds them of Christ, they refuse to listen. They rebel against Him and reject Him. Same as they do to us. But when the Holy Spirit comes to believers, he reminds us of Christ. He returns us to Christ. He restores our relationship with Christ. He teaches us to rely on Christ. The word comfort comes from two Latin words that mean with strength. So the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the comforter, is someone who helps to give us the strength we need to keep going. The Spirit gives us the strength for the relationship after we faced rejection. And when we spend time with Christ in prayer and in the Word, then our testimony once again is powered by the Spirit. So our words once again will be words of love and forgiveness, and our actions once again will be actions of love and forgiveness. Rejection comes to Christians because of Christ, but He sends us His counsel, and He sends us His counsel so you can face this challenge. So you can face this challenge. Chapter 16, first four verses. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes you may remember that I told them to you. Did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And now Jesus tells us here, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So you'll have the strength to continue so you can face the coming challenge of rejection. Know about it now so you'll be prepared for it when it comes. And as I said earlier, it will come. I I was uh, reading... And uh, in commentary that I don't normally use and just look, but he has great stories. And, uh, but he talked about Aristides, uh, uh, Arist- I had this name pronounced and now I've lost it. Aristides. I've got an extra vowel in there. Anyways, Aristides the Just. And in ancient history he lived in Athens. And they finally kicked him out. They actually took a vote of all the wise uh, people, the elders of Athens. And uh, he was ostracized and forced to leave his town. And it's quoted uh, by one historian. You can actually look this up on about.com. They have a thing on ancient history, and they have this story there. And, uh, and one man explained why he voted to kick him out. And what harm had he done? What did he do that was so bad? And the guy said, he hadn't done any harm. He didn't do anything bad. I'm just sick and tired of hearing him called the just. So they kicked him out. Because the worst sin in the world today is not sin, but holiness. The worst offense today is not breaking the law, but keeping it. The worst arrogance is not denying the truth, but believing it. And so in our world today, if you work hard, don't cut corners, tell the truth, love your spouse, dress modestly, read good books, weep over sin, enthuse over goodness, the cool people will laugh at you. Remember Romans 1, the day will come when they call good evil and evil good. Welcome to our world. If you're trying to live a life that pleases Christ, you can count on opposition. There will be times when you'll be rejected. You'll be misunderstood. You will be lied about. You will be gossiped about and slandered. You will be ridiculed. And when persecution comes, don't protest that it's unfair. Don't think that it's unnatural. And don't lose heart. It comes with the territory, is what Jesus is trying to say. It comes from the committed Christian life. It means blessing for your life from God. Blessing? It doesn't sound like blessing. But that's what Jesus says. Blessing. Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Prophets were lied about, misunderstood, and rejected. Jesus himself was lied about, misunderstood, and rejected. It's just part of our heritage as Christians. And Jesus wants us to remember this. He says, I've told you. I've warned you. You need to know this. You need to get ready. You need to be prepared. They rejected me. They'll reject you. They rejected what I said, they'll reject what you say. They rejected what I believe, they'll reject what you believe. They rejected what I did, they'll reject what you do. So decide now how you're going to deal with this coming rejection. That's really important. And you have to ask yourself, so how do I handle it today? What should I decide? How can I deal with this coming rejection? Well, there's five things we can do if we're going to effectively deal uh, with rejection as Christians. There may be more than five, but I think these five are a good start. And the first one is that you need to face yourself. These are listed there in your outline. You need to take an honest inventory. You need to take a close look at yourself and what might cause others to reject you. Maybe you're not being rejected because you're a Christian. Maybe you're being rejected because of something dumb you've said or done. I mean, it's entirely—it's one thing to be rejected for holding tightly to biblical teaching. It's another thing entirely to be rejected because you've been a jerk. And sometimes I think this is true, especially when it comes to the culture war type debates that are so common in our countries. I hear people say something to the effect of they hate us because we hold to biblical values. And there's usually truth to that. But sometimes they hate us because we sound harsh and mean-spirited. And so you need to ask yourself, is there any truth to what they've said? Was the criticism justified? Am I setting myself up for rejection by doing or saying things that cause it? We don't always get rejected because we're Christians. Sometimes we just get rejected because we're not very nice people. Which is what the first part of this chapter was about. All that stuff last week on loving one another. An honest inventory can be kind of liberating. It frees us to take responsibility for our actions. And it can help us to see perhaps we're not to blame. Perhaps the rejection is unjustified. And so then what do you do? And the second thing we need to do, we usually do this last, and I'm putting this near the front, is communicate with God. When rejection hits, it usually hits hard. Perhaps it hits you in the form of feeling that, you know, your folks favor your brother or sister over you. I'm sure we have lots of testimonies of that sort within a church. It can hit on the athletic field. You didn't make the team. It can hit when you find out that the girl or guy of your dreams doesn't even know that you exist. It can hit when report cards come out. And it doesn't stop when you become an adult. The stakes just get higher. Now it hits when the promotion doesn't come when the job isn't working out, when the marriage seems to be falling apart, when the children don't want anything to do with you anymore, when your aging parents are making unrealistic demands of you, what do you do? You go to God. That should be our first response, not our last resort. Pour out your heart to Him. Yell, scream, cry, complain, argue, but let God know how you really feel. It's okay. He's God. He can handle it. I probably can't handle it, but God can handle it. So go to him. Don't be false. Don't be phony. Just lay it out. If you don't know what to say, then listen to what he has to say. Pray his prayers. Open his word and soak it up. A good place to start is in the Psalms. Pick one. I'll pick one for you. Psalm 27. It's a great start. Go there. Psalm 27 is a powerful guide to help you when rejection is keeping you from living the Christian life. Use the words of that psalm as your words. Claim the promise of Christ that he can overcome all your rejections. John 16:33. I have said all these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's a promise of Christ. And after you've spent time alone with God, then you need to return to the battle, return to the world, return to the relationship, and love them anyway. I mean, it's one thing to to know that you need to love those who've rejected you. It's another thing altogether to actually do it. And again, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You may want to run away from them, but the mark of Christian maturity is to stay and hang in there with them. Don't let their lack of love destroy your ability to love. And if you're going to have to love people that you'd rather not love, then you're going to need to learn to forgive a lot. Forgive a lot. Forgiveness is the stuff that Christians are made of. Ephesians 4 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. This morning, Jerry read uh, the Lord's Prayer to us. There's a line in there that says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We don't seem to have much of a problem saying that. The failure to forgive makes us guilty of the same sin, rejecting those who've rejected us. When you refuse to forgive another person, you're sort of throwing them into your emotional prison. And you're stuck in that prison too because you've made yourself the warden. And you won't let them out till you're good and ready, but you can't let yourself out either. When you forgive them, you free yourself. And when you do that, then you're ready to start Rebuilding trust. That's the last thing there. Rebuild trust. It takes a lot of work to rebuild trust after rejection. You have to give the relationship to God. You have to love Him even though it's hard. You have to forgive Him even though you'd rather not. And you may be sinking in a quicksand of rejection right now. You may feel like you're suffocating and you only have one hand sticking up out of the muck of fear and discouragement. But be sure of this, the Lord can take hold of your hand and pull you out and give you sure footing on the rock of his steadfast love. And from that firm foundation, you can take the last step in handling rejection. It took Mike Adkins years to reach Norman. He started by helping to mow his lawn. That was actually the very first step he just went across the street with his lawnmower and mowed his lawn. And then he went on to fix up his house and clean his windows and fix his bathtub. And then he spent some time and he taught him how to cook because he didn't know how to cook. And he taught him how to wash. And he taught him how to brush his teeth. This is a grown man. And even to the point where he went into the bathroom and taught him how to bathe. And when they got through all of that, he began to teach him how to communicate with other people. And he showed him that Jesus loves him. And it took Norman years of rebuilding trust to overcome a lifetime of rejection. But he made it. And Mike Atkins tells the story. You can read it. It's a wonderful story. We see that in the Bible. After his resurrection, Jesus went to Peter. Peter had failed him. Peter had abandoned him. Peter had rejected him. And Jesus loved him, forgave him, and called him back. Jesus took time to rebuild trust. And Jesus loves you and forgives you and is willing to rebuild the trust with you too. He understands what you've been through and what you're going through. And that's a real key point. Because when you've been rejected and you're struggling with loneliness, you think you're the only one. And yet Jesus has been there, literally. There's a play called... I could find the play, but I couldn't find the author. But it's called The Long Silence. It's a short, one-act play. And uh, in this play, there's millions of of people gathered on a great plain before God's throne for judgment. And most shrink back because it's a brilliant light before them. But there are some groups near the front. They're talking heatedly. They're not... uh, Cringing with shame, but with belligerence. And a commotion erupts right in the front. How can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snaps an old woman, and she ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed serial number from Auschwitz. We endure terror, beatings, torture, death. Another group of black men lowered his collar What about this, he demanded, showed an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. Another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl who looked down, why should I suffer? Wasn't my fault. And far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups and each had a complaint against God for the evil and the suffering that he had permitted in their world and in their life. And how lucky God was to live in heaven where it's all sweetness and light. There's no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. I mean, what did God know of all that we've been forced to endure in this world? Looks like he leads a pretty sheltered life. And so each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. And in the center of that vast plain, they consulted And at last they presented their case. And it was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they endured. Their decision was that God would be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born in poverty. Let him be born a minority. Let the legitimacy of his birth be questioned for the rest of his life. Let him be given a work so difficult that even his closest family will think he's crazy for attempting it. Let him be betrayed by his best friends. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury, convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at the last, let him see what it means to be rejected and left alone. (coughs) And then let him die. And let him die so there can be no doubt that he died. There'll be a great host of witnesses to verify it. And let his death be cruel. And as they announced that sentence, murmurs of approval went up from the throng of the people assembled there. And when they finished explaining the sentence they were pronouncing on God, there was a long silence. And no one uttered a word, and no one moved, because suddenly everyone knew that God had already served the sentence. The cross fulfills the purpose of God, and his purpose was not only to expose sin as the uncaused, unprovoked evil that it is, I mean, people talk about rationality and fairness and objectivity. But when truth came into this world in the form of the most powerful person who ever lived, he ended up on a cross. But God's deeper purpose in that very injustice was to answer our hatred with his overwhelming, overcoming love. And when our hatred reached a fever pitch, God absorbed it into himself and gave back love. That's the cross of Christ. Three takeaways, and then we're done. One, the cross of Christ reveals the true character of the world that we live in. It's a loving place if you follow Him. And it's not if you don't. But if you abide in Christ, you will be hated for His sake. Accept it. Two, The true words and loving deeds of Jesus reveal his true character. Everything he did and spoke was of God. And if we abide in him, he will not mislead us. So to some degree, we're not really suffering. We read a responsive reading. I think it said uh, slight and momentary afflictions. Not having Christ Now, that's suffering. But if you have Christ cheer up, he's worth every hit you take. And three, let's repent of our cowardice and take a clear stand for Christ this week, no matter the cost. The problem with so many Christians today is that nobody hates them. Have we been clear enough to be hated? You know, there's an old hymn that says, Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. It's good counsel. When you find yourself confronted uh, with a choice between obeying the world and obeying Christ, then you can't do both, and you have to choose, but you're also weak. Take it to the Lord in prayer right at that instant. Just pray, Lord, help me. And He will. And you'll find words coming out of your mouth for His sake that otherwise you couldn't have said. Have you given your reputation... To the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think that our precious hide is so important we can't endure being misunderstood. Are we enough of a follower of Jesus Christ that the world has a reason to hate us? Let's repent of the sin of being hard to read Monday through Friday. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Father, these are hard words about hatred and rejection and following you. And it's not easy. And it's not fun. We struggle signing up for it. But Lord, you give us a promise that you are with us, Holy Spirit is with us, that we face nothing you haven't already faced and overcome. So enable us in the midst of hard words to trust you, to listen to you, and to be willing to open our mouths for you. We need the power of your spirit so that we can do that because we're weak and we may not do it on our own. So We need your spirit to work in us. Give us that ability. Give us that ability to speak for you, to speak in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.